you can turn with me to Luke's Gospel. We are at the very end of Luke chapter 12 this morning, continuing our sermon series, Kingdom Come. Luke chapter 12, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 49 to 59. Luke 12, verses 49 to 59. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be up on the screen. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west and you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The word of the Lord, and he writes truth upon our hearts. Well, Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus. And we ask now that you would, by your Spirit, illuminate your word. Bring understanding to our hearts. Father, not just understanding, but bring conviction. Bring encouragement. Let your word have its full effect. Change us and conform us to the person of your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we have three simple sections to the sermon this morning. We're going to look at Christ's fire, Christ's baptism, and Christ's division. Breaks out pretty simply in the passage, and we're going to look in those three places this morning. As we look at Christ's fire, I want to draw your attention. I don't know if you've seen it or not. It's fairly new, I think. It's something called the Babylon Bee. Now, some of you may have heard of it. Maybe many of you have not. The Babylon Bee is essentially a Christian version of The Onion. So The Onion is that satirical magazine that's out there, and it likes to to poke fun at things by making news stories that are made up, but they hit just close enough to the truth that the point hits home and also makes a joke. Well, that's what The Babylon Bee does, but from a Christian standpoint, it's actually very humorous. Some of the stories are just downright hilarious. And so you'll see sometimes on a Facebook feed or on social media, people posting to an article they found particularly funny. Oftentimes, the satire of the Babylon Bee isn't just funny, it's convicting. Sometimes it's tragically funny. That was the case with a story that came out a few weeks ago titled, Rob Bell, I Believe Things About Things. I'll just read you. It's a pretty short article. In a bold declaration, Rob Bell has announced to the world that he firmly believes something about something. I believe things about things. 
I am for things. I have a clear conviction from somewhere that my mission is to spread things about something. He declared to a recent soul-to-soul segment of the Oprah popular show Super Soul Sunday feature. I affirm things, the pensive and confident Bell continued after a long pause. I affirm things about things. I affirm all things that have to do with things, and things are important. Some things are maybe true. Bell's shockingly clear statements have come after years of criticism for his ambiguous theological beliefs and have seemingly caught his detractors flat-footed as there has been no successful rebuttals of any of his points by any of his notable critics. The satire being Bell's shockingly clear statements about believing things about things have left his detractors flat-footed. The the tragic sort of humor there is that Rob Bell is a pastor who was famous for all of the orthodox things he didn't believe in. Eventually, Bell left ministry altogether to pursue a career in the entertainment world. But not before he had done untold damage to the body of Christ by teaching and, and perpetuating ideas about the faith that were just completely contrary to the scriptures and to orthodoxy. But he did it in a way that was winsome and with, with clever marketing and, and beautifully told stories. And so people were, were sucked in. The extent of his popularity and influence, in a lot of ways, is a sad commentary on the state of discernment in the church. The Babylon Bee article is funny and humorous, but it actually hits close to home. There was a lack of substance to much of what Bell talked about, and yet he had a massive following. He was one of the most well-known pastors in America for a time. Bell struck a chord, in part, Because he presented a gospel. He presented a version of Jesus that was highly appealing to people today. It was a Jesus without hell, famously declaring in a book that love wins, therefore there is no punishment, right? It was the Jesus of of soft edges. A Jesus who who was easily marketable to mainstream America in many ways. It led to a large, swelling church. And, and significant book publishing deals. But it was effective in part because it was tailored to speak to the idols of America. It was the definition of itching our ears. Now, this isn't just a danger with celebrity pastors or mega churches. Indeed, there are many healthy large churches out there. In fact, I was reminded of the fact that this danger is for everyone. Just a few months ago, I was having a discussion with an acquaintance, with a friend. And this man is really a brilliant guy. He's actually an incredibly intelligent man. He's had prominent positions working in our nation's capital, working for political parties. For a young man, he's had an unusual degree of influence. And I was having this, this discussion with this very articulate, very intelligent guy. And, and we were arguing about who Jesus was and what the nature of the gospel was. I wasn't arguing, you see, with an atheist. I wasn't arguing with someone who didn't believe in Jesus. I was discussing, I was, I was having a debate with someone who would say that they were a believer, 
but was arguing that for 2,000 years, the church has gotten Jesus completely wrong. In this very gifted person's estimation, the Jesus, the, the true Jesus, the real Jesus, is not at odds at all with, with the new moral order. The way that our culture has been shifting, he would say, is actually shifting our culture closer to Jesus. He was lamenting the fact that for many people, myself included, he would have said, we still seem imprisoned to this interpretation, he called it, of Christianity that was under the thumb of, of 2,000 years of, of incorrect beliefs and bad theology. In his opinion, Jesus would be at the forefront of championing the way society has become unhinged with traditional Christian values because in his estimation, those traditional Christian values weren't to be found in the real Jesus. At the heart of it was this sense that Jesus does not exclude people. Christ, in his estimation, was inherently and perpetually inclusive. Love trumped everything. The real Jesus, for those who had eyes to see it, for those who were developed and, and evolved enough to see it, that real Jesus makes no judgments. Now that increasingly popular recasting of Jesus, whether it's Rob Bell in front of a large church and through marketing campaigns, or whether it's my very intelligent, articulate friend, that increasingly popular vision of Jesus is at odds with the Scriptures. It's at odds with Luke chapter 12. As much as he wanted to talk to me about my wrong interpretation, the issue as I talked with him in our discussion was that Christianity at its core is a religion of revelation. It's not up to any culture. It's not up to any people. In any time or place, it's not up to any pastor or any individual or any prophet to create God as he wants him to be. Or to market an image of Jesus that we find more digestible. Christianity is a revealed religion. God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself especially in the person of Jesus. And he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And that revelation is testified to us in this book, in the scriptures. And so as believers, as people, we come to God submitting to his revelation, his disclosure about himself. Our task isn't to domesticate Jesus. It's not to, to take the sharp edges off and to make him easier to swallow. Jesus tells the crowd in this passage in Luke 12, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. In a day and age when it's, when it's kind of in vogue to get Bible verses tattooed on, not many people have that verse tattooed on the back of their shoulder. Oh, what's that? It's my life verse. Jesus came to cast fire on the earth. People aren't getting that as their life verse. And yet there it is in God's revelation, God's disclosure to us. There it is in the mouth of the God man. So what do we do with that? He says, not just I've come to cast fire, I wish that it was already kindled. I wish that the blaze was already going. Now, now some desire to, to moderate this passage, to, to turn the volume down, maybe just to mute it and to ignore it altogether. 
But the more we read the gospel accounts, the more we see how different Jesus was from the palatable versions that we often create and portray and market. John Piper once made the comment, I found it very compelling. He said he spent time going through the Gospels in a period and just marking in the margins where he saw Jesus as tender, T-E, and where he saw Jesus as tough, T-O. In part, as a response to this notion that, that Jesus is this perpetually tender, soft man. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is kind. He is full of mercy. He is the great expression of the Father's mercy to us. But, Piper said, as he went through the Gospels, he was astounded to see. It's not just here and there, every once in a while, Luke 12, every six chapters, maybe there's a... He was astounded the number of times there was a toughness and an edge to the God who was revealed to us, the Jesus who we see in the pages of Scripture. The more we read the gospel accounts, the more we see how different Jesus is from the versions that we create. Luke 12 tells us he's come to cast fire. He's come to create division. He's come not to establish peace. Jesus didn't come to establish peace. What does that mean? That Christ has come to cast fire. What does he mean by fire? Well, we said Christianity is a revealed religion. The beauty of that means we can go to this revelation in Scripture, and the Reformers have taught us Scripture interprets Scripture. We look at the Scriptures, and the passages of Scripture help us to interpret and bring meaning to other passages. So even within Luke's Gospel, in Luke 3, chapter 9, we read another context about fire. In Luke 3, 9, we read, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We read that and we implicitly know being thrown into the fire is not a good thing. Right? There's an element to judgment with this notion of fire. Later in that same chapter of Luke 3, John the Baptist is baptizing, right? He has this baptism of repentance. And before he actually baptizes Jesus, he explains that he isn't the Christ. People are asking, are you the one we've been waiting for? No, not at all. And John says this, John, Luke 3, 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He, the one who's coming, Jesus Christ, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we see fire doesn't just mean there's going to be judgment. Fire also means that there's going to be an an arrival of the Spirit of God, an internalizing of the Spirit of God. So this fire that Jesus will cast on the earth is going to accomplish all sorts of things. It's going to be the consuming fire of judgment, and it's also going to be the refining fire of the Spirit, the enlivening fire of the Spirit that brings new life. First, fire consumes. In Luke 3.17, the imagery is of Jesus winnowing fork in his hand, gathering in the harvest. And when he does this, he separates the wheat from the chaff. The believers from the unbelievers. It's an echo of Psalm 1, right? The righteous and the unrighteous. The wicked are like the chaff which the wind blows away. They lack substance. 
The chaff is this, this worthless, unsubstantial part of the grain that when it's separated is, is thrown in the fire of judgment. Again, not life verse kind of stuff. Maybe this part of Jesus doesn't sit well with us. The issue when parts of Scripture don't sit well with us isn't to flip the page. It's not to go Thomas Jefferson on your Bible and cut the section out. It's to sit there and let the Word work on you. Let the Word need your heart. Let God's truth humble you. Jesus isn't just saying that He will bring fire. In Luke 12, He's expressing a longing a wish that this would happen. The notion of consuming fire, it just chafes against our modern sensibilities, doesn't it? Sinners in the hands of an angry God, that, that famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards, that gets taught as like a, here's the one document you'll read in high school to tell you about what the Puritans were or what the New England revivals were like. Here, read this one document and weren't they crazy? Now let's just ignore them and think they were strange. But that sermon is Edwards expressing this notion from, from Luke 12. Calling people to respond. We want to push it aside. We don't want to read sermons like that anymore. We don't want to read passages like this anymore. It's so absolute. It's so demanding. Implicit in the language of fire is this reality that there is an absolute truth. There's an absolute kind of morality. That Jesus demands an absolute kind of allegiance. Jesus has a burning desire. And it isn't to gather everyone around a campfire to roast marshmallows and strum on the guitar and sing camp songs. It's a wish that the fire of judgment was already kindled. There's nothing relativistic about Jesus. He doesn't allow for ambiguous loyalties or, or half-hearted followers. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And that which is unsubstantial, that which has the divided heart, will be cast and consumed by the fire. But fire also refines. Part of what Jesus longs for here is the arrival of the Spirit. And when the Spirit arrives, He internalizes the Gospel. He causes men and women to be born again. He brings about new life and, and a new heart and new belief. The Spirit writes the law on our heart. And as He does all these things, the Spirit refines us. It's a common image in Scripture. Luke 3 makes the connection between the Spirit and fire. And we see it again where? In Acts, right? Volume 2 of Luke's work. In Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes with what? Tongues of fire. The Spirit comes and there's this connection with fire. At the very closing of the Old Testament canon, in, in Malachi 3, there's this picture, this imagery of fire, and it's pointing towards the Messiah. It points forward in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord God of hosts. All right! The Messiah is coming! The messenger you want! The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight! He's coming! Verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? 
And who can stand when He appears? But He is a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Now the smith uses fire for the particular purpose of refining, of purifying the precious metals. So he takes the silver, he takes the gold, and he puts it into the furnace, into the fire, so that all of the impurities are burned off. So the dross disappears. And what you're left with is pure precious metal. Supposedly, the way these refiners worked was, they knew their work was done, they knew it was sufficiently refined silver, when they could pull the silver out, and it would cool, and they could look, and it was so pure, that reflection was visible in it. A helpful image of what the Spirit wants to do, how He wants to refine. We would be so refined by this Spirit that Jesus longs to have arrive that His people would be refined to reflect His image. But that refining, as Malachi tells us, it's not something to treat lightly. That's the fire that Christ describes that He longs for. Then in verse 50, Jesus says something strange. He says he wants to be baptized, that he has a baptism to be baptized with. Now that's weird because at the end of Luke 12, we're nine chapters removed from the fact that Jesus was already baptized by John, right? Now this isn't the go-to verse for somebody who wants to get re-baptized and have like a special spiritual experience. I've been baptized 15 times and I always go to Luke 12. That tells me, you know, Jesus wanted to be baptized again, so maybe I should be. But that's not what's going on in Luke 12. Jesus isn't envisioning a baptism of water at all. Baptism, to be baptized, it's this idea of immersion. It literally refers to being immersed in something, being plunged into something. It's actually a metaphor of distress and suffering. The baptism that Jesus will be baptized with, that he's pointing towards, is actually his suffering and death on the cross. But here it's important to read carefully. At first glance, it sort of looks like Jesus is stressing about the cross. Right? He's greatly distressed until this baptism happens. Is he starting to have sleepless nights? Is there some insomnia setting in with Jesus as he considers the cross? What's going on? Well, the word distress really means he's consumed by something. That word distress means that there's this sort of earnest desire, a great passion that has gripped him. This earnest desire that's driving him. It's the same word we read in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all die. This notion of Christ's love for us, it captures us. It changes us. It reorients our passion. That's the idea Jesus has in Luke 12. This upcoming baptism that he must be baptized with, it controls him. He's dead set on it. His eyes are locked on that goal. Since Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been consumed by the cross. He faithfully turns his face to Jerusalem in Luke 9. 
It's Luke telling us Jesus is now distressed. He has an earnest desire. He's controlled by the goal the Father has sent for him, that he will go to Calvary. The cross, as we work our way in Luke's gospel, continues to loom larger and larger. But we also hear language like this in Mark 10. Mark 10 is that place where we have the famous episode of James and John. Remember, they come to Jesus and, hey, Jesus, so uh, we were talking and, you know, since we're you know, more gifted than the other guys and you like us more and, you know, it would be strategic on your part. We just want to make sure, we, could we lock down being at your left and your right, kind of when you come into your glory? The famous episode. James and John specifically asking Jesus, when you come into your glory, can we be seated at the positions of prominence? Now, when we think of that, what are you imagining? I usually imagine Jesus in heaven's throne room, right? And James and John imagining themselves in heaven's throne room on smaller thrones. In glory. Now, that in and of itself is a ridiculous request. It's this, this total lack of any awareness of, of what the kingdom is about, right? They're completely clueless, and that's what commentators talk about. But notice how Jesus responds. Jesus' vision of what they're asking for is totally the opposite of what they think they want. Jesus said to them, Mark 10, 38, you do not know what you are asking. We kind of think that, oh, you don't know what you're asking. Like, it's not your place to ask to be put at the right and the left. No, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, oh, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The idea isn't that there's two different people who get to sit next to Jesus in the throne room of heaven. It's not like, well, James and John, sorry. Thomas and Peter already asked last week. I've got other cabinet positions I can give you, but Peter was ahead of the curve. That's not it at all. Their request to sit at his left and his right in glory imagines positions of prominence and seats of power. But for Jesus, the place of glory is not the throne room. The place of glory is the cross. The baptism with which he will be baptized. To be at his left and right in glory would be to hang in the place of the two thieves for which it's been prepared and appointed. This is a profound thing. Christ is controlled. He is consumed. His eyes are fixed on the cross. Why? Because it's the goal for which He came, but also because the cross is the place where His glory happens. Can we sit at your left and your right when you come into your glory? 
I am controlled, I am distressed as I think about my baptism, which is to come, which is the place where my glory will be revealed. I am consumed by God's glory, which will happen at the cross. The cup of the cross is a bitter thing. You don't know what you're asking for. You want to drink this? You will suffer with me. But not in the way you think. The baptism of, of Golgotha, it, it's brutal. But it's there upon the tree that the glory of God shines. It's at the cross, Jesus is saying in Mark 10 and in Luke 12, it's at the cross that God's glory breaks forth with its greatest brilliance. Jesus is constrained by an urgent longing. He's not a glutton for punishment. He knows that place of punishment is the place of God's greatest glory. And as the sinless Son of God dies in the place of ruined sinners, we see God's glorious plan of redemption. And Satan is crushed. And the angels are silent in awe. And the redeemed are saved. This is a profound thing because it shows us the great danger of domesticating Jesus. You cannot tame him without also diminishing his glory. Those two things are connected. To dull his sharp edges, to dilute references to fire and judgment and refining, that's to mute the reality of the tree where Jesus will hang and bear God's wrath for sinful people. That's why it's a place of glory. The sinless one will become sin. The glory of the cross is that Christ hangs there to pay our penalty. The glory of the cross is that God's wrath falls on Jesus so that God's mercy can fall on us. And you can't get there to make those arguments or to talk about that kind of awesome exchange and glory if you want to neuter Jesus. If you want to take away fire and take away baptism and take away division. One Corinthians one eighteen for the word of the cross, the word of the cross, the notion of Jesus hanging in shame and dying, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Rob Bell doesn't get it. All sorts of people in the world don't get it, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart." Which brings us to the final point. Christ's division. Because the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, it becomes a stumbling block, the scriptures say. The cross becomes a point of division. 50, verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Lots of people think that today. No, I tell you, Jesus says, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and so on and so forth. This is a huge statement in that society. This isn't the day and age where, where you've got people and families just all doing scattered things all the time. Right? It's not the day and age of of kids going off and doing their own thing and parents doing their own thing and just being almost oblivious to what's going on within the family. This is the day where the family matters. 
in significant ways, where the family is of highest importance. It's a day when preserving family harmony is like the paramount pursuit. So it's scandalous for Jesus to sit there and say, I haven't just come to bring fire. I'm not just going to a baptism that includes the baptism of the cross. If you follow me, if you believe and agree with this fire, if you entrust yourself to this baptism, it's going to bring division between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. His point, though, is not that Christians should make a point of division. That's not what he's trying to say. He's not saying, if you're with me, you will be divisive. Some people kind of get that notion. No, the point is, division is inevitable because the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's only possible to maintain peace if we proclaim a Christ that is palatable to the world. But if the Christ we embrace is the authentic Christ, the Christ of scriptures, the Christ of fire, the Christ of the cross then division will come. It will come for the simple fact that people cannot handle, they cannot swallow, they cannot digest the exclusive claims that Christ demands of them. This isn't an all roads lead to God, Christ. The picture of the wheat and the chaff during the harvest in Luke 3 drives the point home. The grain and the chaff, as you're harvesting, there's the pile of, of the wheat and the chaff mixed together. And you take the winnowing fork. It's one of those big wooden forks, you know, like in the movies where you've got the villagers, the pitchfork. It's that kind of thing. The winnowing fork. And you take it and you thrust it into the pile of grain and you start throwing it into the air. Why? Because the wheat, the grain is heavy and the chaff is light. And so you throw it into the air and the wind blows and the light stuff is blown away. And you keep doing it over and over and suddenly all you have left is a pile of wheat and a pile of grain. Now part of this is good news. What does Jesus say? I have come to do these things to separate the wheat and the chaff so I can do what with the wheat? So I can gather it. Part of this hard passage is great grace. Jesus isn't going to leave us in a tangled world forever. He's not going to leave us forever stumbling with people who, who hate the cross and who despise us because of our love for the cross. There is a day when he is going to gather all of his own to himself. Part of this is a word of great grace and great mercy to God's people. He will gather the wheat. He will preserve it. But for the chaff, it will be swept up. And it will be burned. Jesus' ministry is of, of sifting and separating. Jesus' kingdom differs so radically from the world. His kingdom differs so radically from the world that division is inevitable. There is no such thing as an incognito Christian. Indistinguishable from the world around us. James says, you can't love the world and love God. He's not saying you can't love people. He's saying you can't love the value systems of the world. You can't love what the world stands for. You can't love what the world pursues. 
and still claim to be loving Christ and the ethics of his kingdom and the goal that he's pursuing in the world. As elect exiles, we've been purchased by Christ's blood and so our identity is shaped by who Christ is. And when we love Jesus with an exclusive love, that will create divisions. It won't be divisive. The point isn't that you're being a jerk in your everyday life and you point at the scriptures and say, well, Jesus said stuff was going to happen. No, you're not supposed to be offensive. Your loyalty to Jesus and the offensiveness of the gospel is what's offensive. You being stupid and people opposing you in your stupidity is not an excuse. The blessing is when you suffer for righteousness' sake, not idiocy. And that's an important point to make, because there are Christians who are just knuckleheads about this. Love Christ exclusively. Love His kingdom. Love what He calls us to. And pray and hope that divisions don't come, but know that they will. It's not a call for us to reject others. It's a prediction of how nominal believers and how unbelievers will react when they encounter authentic faith. I had a friend. I was with, I was in the church when this brother got converted. Guy got converted as an adult. We'd been praying for it for a long time and it was this powerful, incredible thing. He stood in front of the church and he gave a testimony. And it was one of those, like you hear the testimony and it's like, yes! You know, like, I think revival might break out this morning. It was one of those kind of mornings. And then I got to minister with this friend as he had to walk through the way his conversion to Christ almost destroyed his relationships with his family. And he wasn't a fool. He wasn't an idiot. He wasn't being offensive himself. But his family could not fathom and understand that this, this, this nominal, cultural, culturally Christian family started to, are you in a cult or something? You go to church every Sunday? And then you meet during the week? What are you doing? He goes to his parents. And he confesses to them through tears that he had his girlfriend get an abortion. He's confessing to them because it was your grandchild. And they're like, what is your problem? Of course you did that. And these relationships just started to dissolve. And they started to fray. And there's these divisions, and I've got him in my office, and he's just distraught. I love my brother. I love my sister. I love my parents. But I love Jesus, and they can't stand me now. They don't want me to come home for Thanksgiving. Love Jesus with an exclusive kind of love. And division will happen. Jesus concludes by turning to the crowds and asking them, how can you tell the weather? 
How can you interpret that when the wind blows off the Mediterranean, rain is coming, and when it blows from the south across the desert, a scorching heat is coming? How can you figure that out? How can you take out your phones and go to the weather app and see the six-day forecast and know that at noon there's a 15% chance of rain? How can you do all of that? And here I am, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Israel, that you've been waiting for and praying for. I'm right in front of you, and you can't figure it out. And then he concludes with this kind of strange, like, all of a sudden he's talking about the courtroom. Don't go before the judge. Try and settle before you get there. It's not like special ethics for always make sure you hire a lawyer who will settle. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's envisioning the final judgment. Don't go before the judge. Don't wait until the final day and find out that you're chaff and not wheat. Don't wait and find out you're numbered among the goats and not the sheep. Luke 12 is a stark reminder. It's time to respond to the authentic Jesus. Jesus has not come, Luke 12 and countless other places show us, to make everyone happy. He's not trying to win a beauty pageant. You know the beauty pageant where it's like the way you win the judges over is some form of the answer. I want world peace because I know it's what you want to hear. I have not come to bring peace, Jesus says. He's a judge. And he's not concerned about offending us. Jesus is concerned that we won't hear the message of the kingdom. That we'll fail to interpret that he's establishing that kingdom. Jesus has come to call people to take a side. And he's come to tell us that there will be winners and losers. There will be wheat and chaff. There will be those burned by the fire. And there will be those refined and sanctified by the fire. Mark 1.15 at the beginning of his gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Would you bow your heads? Lord, you are a holy God. It is a hard thing to preach these passages and have any sort of awareness of who we are and the kind of sinners that we are and to recognize what we deserve. So Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, by your people sitting under your word and not pushing back against your word, Lord, that our struggle wouldn't be with the picture of Jesus that we see in these pages, this true image of who Jesus is, Lord, that our struggle would be how you could be so gracious and kind to us. And Lord, we pray, give us wisdom. Help us not to be offensive. Help us not to be foolish. But at the same time, God, give us conviction. Give us the same distress, the same consuming passion for the folly of the cross that we know is your power to save us. And God, give us peace with relationships that are strained and that even dissolve. As we take hope in the reality, we are presenting the true Christ and so we can rejoice 
in the few who respond. And we ask that you would do that now, Lord. Give us boldness to embrace the true Christ. Give us the grace to cling to Him exclusively. And give us the words to proclaim this gospel so that people would see and recognize now is the time. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That They must repent and believe in the gospel. Lord, do that. Bring in the harvest. In your name, Jesus. Amen.